The dawn of the digital era marked a major pivot point in post-production technology that left some behind working in analog, while others charged fearlessly into a brave new world. While I was working on the movie or on films, there was something always in the back of my mind that said, there's going to be a better way of doing this. It was very clear to everybody that the workflow had to transition to digital. Then we suddenly went to computers. Nobody had computers before this. It was traumatizing. I would say a third of the industry walked off the industry because of this. What I didn't realize is that in the end, it became such a powerhouse that we actually ended up writing the book on post digital post-production. Suddenly Sound One became the mecca. Here staff and clients of Sound One talk about this moment of transition from analog to digital and what it foretold for the film and television industry at Sound One. This Frame by Frame podcast is one of a multi-part series on the era of New York's Sound One. Frame by Frame is presented by Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at at postny. The host for this episode is Harbor Picture Company and Decibel 11. This episode includes the voices of former Sound One studio manager Jay Rubin, picture editor Tim Squires, supervising sound editors Dan Sable, Stuart Stanley, Steve Bourne, Phil Stockton, and Ira Spiegel, former Sound One managing director Jonathan Porath, re-recording mixers Tom Fleischman, Mel Zelnicker, and Peter Wagner, music editor Sherry Johansson, post-production supervisor Susan Lazarus, audio-video engineer Hector Cordero, technical engineer Rick Schulman, and chief engineer Avi Laniado. While I was working on the movie or on films, there was something always in the back of my mind that said, there's going to be a better way of doing this. I know it. Someday I'm not going to have to go and pull out a quarter inch tape and take it to a recorder and audition it for sound effects and then transfer it on the 35 mag and then roll it up and give it back to myself and then put it on the movieola. But having said that, it was a lot of fun. I couldn't work fast enough on the movieola. You take a roll of sound film and you throw it out and it would unspool on the floor. You'd have everything laying around on the floor, not hanging in bins. And you just pull something from here and pull something from there and splice it together and make it work. And it was a lot of fun. But then I knew something was going to happen that allowed you audition your sound, grab it, and edit it, leaving your chair. And that's what happened in the digital. I came to New York in 1982, and I went to see Sound One, and it was kind of weird for me because coming from, from Hollywood, working with a lot of technology and very hip stuff, Sound One kind of looked like... I wasn't sure if it was kind of a makeshift facility, a lot of black boxes between machines. I think up till then, Sound One would like to think that they were in the digital domain, but you know, they had a synclavier. Elisha uh, always wanted to move ahead, and, and you know, my argument to them was always, if you guys don't do that, you're just gonna die because it's, the business is changing. Uh, what I didn't realize is that in, in the end, it became such a powerhouse that we actually ended up writing the book on post-product, digital post-production. I, I, I perfectly believe in that because the folks from Hollywood would come over and start seeing what we were doing. 
So companies like, like Sonic Solution and Akai and DigiDesign basically kind of learn how to shave on our face. You know, in traditional film facilities, you have a machine room for one studio that has four operators and had 35 dubbers. And, and my idea and, and the team that I brought with me was to create one machine room that handles four studios. So it was a very different way of working and it was a big, big project and very, very expensive. This is where Jeremy became very important because Jeremy was a fairly shrewd businessman and, and so Alicia had the ideas but Jeremy actually put it together. So we had to have Neve build special consoles for us that could do what we wanted to do because they didn't exist. And we had to spend time with Sonic Solution which was basically a, a music editing uh, system but had knew, knew nothing about synchronizing to picture. picture. Same thing, DigiDesign was just a music great system but it knew nothing about synchronizing the picture. And Akai, which was a very good music tool, but we saw great possibilities in that. So Jeremy, uh, and I helped him in some way, was very, very aggressive in cutting deals with these manufacturers. I can tell you, for instance, in Sonic Solution, you know, we came to them and said, if you guys do this and this and this and this and this, we'll buy 30 machines. You know, these guys would, would sell one machine at a time. And these guys always wanted their money. We said, we're not going to pay you until <laughs> it's going to do these 15 things we wanted to do. And it was really amazing. And I, this, is, this is how I personally believe Sound One really revolutionized the whole post-production in New York. Then the picture system started coming online as well, the Avid, and suddenly Sound One became the mecca. And, and we were the go-to people. Anybody who wanted to get involved in anything came to us. You know, our technical team was pretty good and we were the guys who tried everything first and had a lot of it, not one. So we, we had the ears of the manufacturers. And, you know, uh, I would say that Tommy was very brave and was willing. I remember Tommy mixed a movie. It was the first time we were gonna use hard disk recorders, Akai. And we went to the producer, I forget the name of the movie, we went to the producer, we, we created it as a, as a pure double system. You know, if it, I said to the producer, we really want to try this thing, it's going to be amazing, we're going to record directly to a hard disk. If there's a problem, it will take us 20 minutes, we'll go back to the magnetic tapes and stuff like that. And, and the producer agreed, and we never went back. It was the most amazing, so, you know, between Tommy and Dom, who were like the more technical savvy guys who, who wanted to use the equipment and eventually Lee mixed Men in Black completely on, on hard drive. Even though he played back for Mag, we recorded and it was really amazing that whole transformation um, to a point that I would say we kind of started building in 92, 93, 94, it took time. I would say that by 96, Sound One just exploded. One of the things that happened with this digital transition was that we went from something that was physically mechanical with gears and teeth, and you understood it from a mechanical point of view. Then we suddenly went to computers. Nobody had computers before this, okay? You know, maybe one crazy guy had a computer in his house or something, but mostly no one had computers. All of a sudden, computers come on the scene. All of a sudden, Sonic Solutions comes on the scene and Pro Tools, and they pressure the death out of that machine, and so it would crash. 
you know, today we understand it crashes, turn it off, turn it on again. You know, like that's, you know, back then it was like, oh my God, to all these people that were mechanically inclined. I would say a third of the industry walked off the industry because of this. It was traumatizing <laughs> at the very least. And I, I don't, you know, like I want to say, that, is there a better word? There's not too much of a better word. It was traumatizing for many when we started going into digital from, and it, and it started on the editorial side before it got onto the mix side of things too. You're working with a moviola and film and something that you can actually touch and magnetic film, and it's not going to just disappear. Right. And it might fall on the floor, it. and you're like, wait, oh, wait. Wait, where you know? did that go? <laughs> but it's written on it where it is. Yeah. You're not going to just, like, lose it. You don't yeah. lose film, reels of film. So for all of a sudden, something that you've been working on for so long that you're used to just being in a nice 35-millimeter reel right here is is gone yeah, that could be tra traumatizing. Yeah, I would say it was traumatizing because also these new Pro Tools programs and Sonic Solutions pressured these computers so hard that they would crash them. And crashing back then was like, oh my God, everything, like crashing was the end all, like, oh my God, the computers, everything's gone, you know, where it may or may not have been. But whereas today crashing is really a non-thing. But then it was... It was like, oh my God, everything. It was life ending at that moment. So it was very traumatizing. I think know, that's a good word. You didn't know about backing up. Right, backing up. You were learning what was backup, how seriously you take it. Right. It was much harder too because the devices didn't have like, you know, just these huge hard drives that kind of did it. You know, you had floppies and this, that, and the next. And um, it became, uh, it's just much more difficult back then. Yeah. I remember uh, Pam Demetrius came to me one day and had been working cutting on something for so long and in the beginning Pro Tools had a really bad feature in that it didn't auto save for you so if you didn't hit save you lost stuff but this was worse she was having a problem with a session she'd been cutting for two weeks and all of a sudden showed up one day and nothing would open the session wouldn't open and she was freaking out and even for me, this was a little bit more of a problem than I was used to. And it took me probably about an hour to figure out a way to get her back 95% of her work. And when I did, the next day I showed up and there were flowers on my desk from Pam. That was just the kind of thing that happened all the time. People were always asking me, you know, how do I make Pro Tools do this? And I just knew. So I think it was, I think it was pretty valuable for everyone for me to be there. I knew digital so well that I didn't even know analog. I didn't know about tape and sprockets and films. If people ever asked me, you know, what's a dubber? I'd be like, oh, it's one of those machines. But I, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about how they were synchronized. I knew all about how digital was synchronized, but I knew nothing about that. So it was very clear to everybody that the workflow had to transition to digital. And I had worked on a film at a different facility at Sony Music Studios in 1994 called Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, which was produced by Robert Altman, directed by Alan Rudolph. And I got the job through a confluence of events. They had done some recording on a digital machine that wouldn't hold sync. And I, prior to that, had been the Northeast Regional Products Specialist for a company called Digidesign, which eventually got bought by Avid, and they were the people who created Pro Tools. So I knew all about digital technology, I knew all about digital audio, 
And one of the people who was working on this show called me up and said, hey, you're the Digi guy. Can you tell us how to put this film back in sync? And they had recorded all of the film with no sync. And I could tell them how to put the film back in sync because I knew how. It was sort of convoluted, but I managed to get all the sound rolls back in sync and transferred into a Pro Tool system. And for doing that, I became my first film job. I was never an assistant. I was never an apprentice. The first feature film I ever worked on was an $11 million film directed by Alan Rudolph. And I was the music editor and a co-supervisor on that film because I knew how to put it in sync, <laughs> essentially. That happened. I did that at a different studio and they were it wasn't really a film place so much. It was Sony Music Studios that actually did the mix for that film. And I had heard about Sound One somehow and I walked in one day and I met a guy named Bill and I told him I had just done I was just a co supervisor on this film and he said, Great, you want a room? And he gave me a room on the seventh floor to start a little business supervising features. And I it was a kind of an interesting story because when you worked for Digidesign, they would let you purchase Pro Tool systems for yourself. So you could understand the hardware and you got a very, very good deal on it. I bought four of them. And after I left, I know Digi changed the rule that you could buy one Pro Tool system <laughs> for yourself. So I set up my four Pro Tool systems in this room on the seventh floor at Sound One. And I think I was loaded into the room, video decks, everything, before I had my first job there. But the first job did come along real quickly. It was a feature called The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love. It was being edited by a woman named Sue Graff, who I met through the show. And I just became the sound supervisor. I cut the sound effects. I hired a dialogue editor. I hired ADR editors. And I just, that was my first film on my own as a supervisor and then from there my relationship with Bill grew pretty well. I would say pretty much whenever a job came in that wasn't slated for one of the big guys that was around people that that people already knew, he would call me into his office and say, "Hey, here's this film." I'd be like, "I'll do it." You know, <laughs> so that was it. In fact, then a TV series came along, an episodic and Bill said, hey, you want to be the sound supervisor? And I'm like, yes, I want to be the sound supervisor. So I had my four Pro Tool systems. I had, <laughs> you know, I had a little room there. And I hired a bunch of editors who were always kind of roaming the halls in Sound One anyway. Dialogue editors, ADR editors, you know. And, uh, you know, I kept bouncing back and forth between two or three movies and then a series. And then two or three movies and a series. And I pretty much worked steady from that point on. Sometimes I would be a music editor on the project as well. Sometimes I would not edit. Sometimes I'd be a sound effects editor. I just started doing projects. And all of it for me was about two things. One was Bill really liked me and I liked Bill. I think the reason he liked me was because I used to show up at seven in the morning and he used to show up at around seven in the morning. And I kind of think the reason he liked me is because there was very few other people to talk to at that time, <laughs> you know? So I'd walk in and he'd be there and we'd be sitting down and we'd be chatting and I'd find out about things, you know? And then the other reason was I was kind of the perfect person to have been hired there, which I wasn't, but I could have been the person who was hired there to sort of bring everyone into the future. Instead, they gave me space there. I did a lot of films and I think I helped a lot of people come into the future, you know, with this technology. 
a pretty common story was, you know, sort of when you don't understand that technology and you think it's not working and I could walk into a room and hit one little click of a mouse and like, oh, here it is, click. And people would get really, really angry. And I started a company called Planet 10 Post with Paul Suchek and Eliza Paley. And mm. the three of us were partners and we had this little business and it was kind of hilarious that all the all day long you'd hear Eliza going, Steve, 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 <laughs> Steve. And I, I really would walk into a room and like, oh, here it is. And she'd be like, so she would, she would be a little upset. Eventually, Paul, who was a bit of a jokester, made Eliza's um, error sound on her Mac into her voice saying, Steve. So anytime she clicked anything and it would make a beep, instead of the beep, it goes, Steve. And That's a suit check thing. It was very funny. I started with Gene uh, Geraghty at the Sinclair, and that was sort of the transition from analog to digital. We were still working on two-inch tape, but we also had the, the keyboard in front of us and a, a Mac machine, and it was sort of uh, testing it out. But you know, we we wanted uh, we would take a sound effect and we would play it across the board, and there were there were different methods of creating the the. The sounds, it was, it was anything from blowing into a straw type thing to the keyboard to pressure. Uh, it was all sort of brand new, but that was right at the so beginning the story, with Gene. The story behind the Sinclair is that I got a demo of the system. The New England Digital had an office two blocks away from 1619, and they called me in to show me the system. And I was impressed, and I took Alicia, and I wanted him to see it too, so he could see what, you know, the new way of recording is going to be. He got so excited, he ran back to the office and he wrote a check for three systems. Jeremy was away. He came back. <laughs> he came back and he was like, are you nuts? And he bought, I think, uh, twice as many hardware from them for the price of one. And that's how he started with the first uh, yep. system there. What year was that? That was probably 87 80 88 i want to say 88 87 88 yeah yeah i think sonic solution was before pro tools yeah uh, at the time pro tools couldn't even sync to picture when john Purcell and i came to sound one in 92 we were kind of trying to bring a lot of the digital technology that was used in audio for video in in in, in town in places like sync sound and in editel and Sonic Solution was the best music editor that was used for mastering. It was a great machine. It, it sounded great, and I think Todd Cassow had one. C5 used them. But they didn't have any synchronicity either. None of these companies knew anything about sync. So these things were basically running wild. I remember wherever a client would come in to set up his own room, even though they would bring their own equipment and they needed help, they would go to Alicia and say, Alicia, I need help because I don't have the tech support or whatever. He would come to us and say, listen, it's his stuff, but go and help him. Give him all the support that he needs. And because of the uh, attitude that someone had toward the client, helping everyone, and I'm talking about about 80 cutting rooms with different people working. Each one has his own setup. We got to be involved with everyone beyond the required. So Andy Munchen came in with the first montage system. The montage system had about 30, Andy is a, is a film editor who was working with the first digital tape 
based picture editing setup that had about 30 Betacam, 30 Betacam tape. It all connected to one computer that was synchronizing the tape. Back then, there was no easy way to synchronize it. The system was very cumbersome, like three huge racks of tape machines. No one ever used it before. And Elisha came and he said, you guys gonna learn the system now and you're gonna help him. And for us, it was a challenge, but it was a different approach to things. And that's what was special to me, working with all these people. Stuart Levy brought a film to Sound One, New Jersey Drive hired me as a sound editor, and they allowed me to bring AudioVision in. I think I had, was the first to bring an AudioVision into Sound One, which at that time everyone was struggling with sync and picture, and that had the first nonlinear picture I was running with. I, we did a LaserDisc nonlinear um, interactive yeah. theatrical film together with the AudioVision, which was made by Avid. Yeah, it was, actually it was before it was, Avid, it was, before it was called AudioVision. It was still in beta. It was still, I would send uh, crash reports back to Tewksbury every day and the next day I would have uh, a new software that was sent over. It was crazy. Stuart was the amazing. Sync, the sync problems with uh, those early digital systems, both Sonic Solutions and Pro Tools. And um, I worked a lot with, with C5 and Skip Levesay was using Sonic and also the Post Pro, which was uh, an outgrowth of the Synclavier. But they were trying to find a, a box that would synchronize these things with film, and it was a real problem because they, they were all dropping frames. They were trying to convert from time code to, to feet and frames, and it, it, it was very cumbersome. And we wound up, I mean, the solution for us was at Sound One for a number of years was to record a mag stripe of time code and put a start mark on it, and that was our clock. <laughs> And that's how we sunk up the, you know, and if it was a confirmation in the reel, you had to conform the time code stripe. It was a nightmare. <laughs> you had a confirmation of more than, what, two or three feet on the time code roll, it, uh, the system would just lose track of where it was. It took like a second or two to we clocked yeah. to the new time code. Eventually, that's we, correct. I guess, wound up with the Adam Smith was the first well, one. Before, the Adam, yeah. Smith, no, before, before yeah. the Adam Smith, we had the... the no, you did a movie for Laurie Anderson, yeah. and we had a 3348 that we needed to sync to our biphase. Right. And me and Gaskinas, who came from Sony to help us put it wow. together, yeah. took the 8LB apart. Bob Twoller was also involved. And we took a Lynx system that we opened up an 8LB and got the into the electronics of it to pull certain sync frequencies <coughs> to connect the two together so we could uh, generate time code. And that was syncing the 3348. They exhibited that film in digital. It was like a showcase. It was this film that Laurie Anderson made. It was all music, and it had actually been mixed in a music studio. Well, there was a, a woman named Leanne Unger who mixed it, and they brought it to Sound One to finish it, sort of format it for theatrical, but they wanted to keep it digital. Right. They wanted to stay with the digital, so we had the digital tape machine, and I think they wound up exhibiting it on some kind of a Fostex or some some kind of a uh, digital picture player, uh, one of the early ones. That they were it was able mixed to through an analog AMS Neve up <coughs> on the 8th floor, Studio C. Yeah. I remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was the re-recordist on that film with Laurie. Yeah. 
It's called uh, Home of the Brave. Because she wanted to keep it digital, we had nothing to do in the back room. Really, I mean, you, you wanted to change the reels yourself, Tom. <laughs> it was great, it was great. Bill Panko, you, I think he's still there. He had, he was the editor for Snake Eyes. And he, this is the sort of the lighter side of uh, the computer era, and he brought on a great, great ADR editor, Harriet, Harriet Filo. And uh, Maurice called me in the room and said, Harriet's starting this morning, and he, she's got to have a session this afternoon, and she's up on Pro Tools upstairs, and she needs some help, so go upstairs and help her. But you can only spend one hour in the room and get out of there. That's it. I go up there and help Harriet get going. I said, okay, Maurice, I don't know that much about it. He goes, get up there and do it, one hour, and come back. <laughs> so I said, okay, okay, and I run, up, I run upstairs to Harriet's room, and she's in a panic in her room. She goes, I got to go downstairs at 3 o'clock, have a session. And I got, I, 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 and it's on a computer, it's not on, what do I do? I said, well, let, let's get this computer running. I go over the keyboard, and I hit the button on the keyboard back then, and the, and the Mac goes, bung. She goes, how did you do that? I said, I said Harriet, you got to call for an assistant now. You need an assistant in this room now. And then I ran down to Maurice. But how did you do that? <laughs> the Era of New York Sound One podcast series is co-produced by Sherry Johansson and Isabel Siderni. The recording engineers were Peter Wagoner, Bobby Johansson, and Mike Rivera. In New York, this is Frame by Frame. Frame by Frame.